reading today is Luke 23, verses 33 to 49. It can be found on the Bibles in the uh, pew in front of you on page 1059. That's 1059. Luke 23, 33 to 49. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved the others, let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out, in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Well, good morning, everyone. Wow, there's a lot of people here. How good is that? My name is Nathan, by the way. Uh, welcome to you if it's your first time with us today, if you're a guest or a visitor. Uh, welcome to our regulars. Welcome to those people who are watching online. Uh, welcome to if you got a postcard in your letterbox and decided to come along this morning, or perhaps you might have seen the, the banner out on the beachfront as well, or maybe you just wanted to get in out from the rain. That's great as well. Good to have you here too. Uh, I want to start this morning by taking us back to simpler times, to simpler times. On New Year's Day 2019, tidying up with Marie Kondo premiered on Netflix. Now, I never watched the show myself. But there was a short window back then when you really couldn't avoid people talking about her. You remember that? Kondo quickly became uh, the world's most famous organiser, which is quite a title, isn't it? Most famous organiser. Her philosophy of tidying up uh, revolves around the concept of sparking joy. Sparking joy. So basically, you work your way around the house, room by room, object by object, only keeping the things that spark joy. It's like, what if everything sparks joy? <laughs> then you're in trouble. 
Condo herself obviously sparked joy because people ate it up, right? People loved it. Her books have sold millions of copies in over 30 different countries. In 2015, she made it onto Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential List. She even bagged an Emmy nomination for the Netflix show. Going pretty well, right? All of that, though, took an interesting turn at the start of this year. Don't know if you heard. She did an interview and the headlines went viral. Marie Kondo admits that she's kind of given up <laughs> on tidying up after having three kids. Yeah, that's about right. In the interview, uh, the Queen of Clean, she admitted this. She said, my home is messy, but the way I'm spending my time is the right way for me at this time, at this stage of my life. <clears throat> Seems the birth of her third child was really what tipped her over the edge. She wasn't a neat freak anymore. She was now a messy mortal, just like the rest of us. And untidy people everywhere breathed a sigh of relief or broke out in applause like we have just now. Now, as you can imagine, Twitter went to town. My wife had a good laugh at this one, filled with schadenfreude and victory, someone posted. I had five, Marie, as in kids. <laughs> I never listened to you. Uh, remember when she said kids would help you fold laundry? <laughs> laughing face, laughing face, laughing face. I knew it, I knew it. Didn't I say this would happen? Didn't I hope this would happen? Mwahahahaha, kind of sound like a Bond villain. But my favourite was this one. That third kid not sparking joy, you know what you got to do, Kondo. <laughs> like, yeah. You know what you've got to do, Kondo. It is strange, isn't it? It's strange, the pleasure that we take from other people's failures. The Germans have a word for it, Schadenfreude. I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering that, but Schadenfreude, isn't that like the most German-sounding word you've ever heard? For some reason, we draw the greatest joy when misfortune happens to the loftiest amongst us, right? Those who talked a big game, but then who couldn't come up with the goods. Those who fail at practicing what they preach. We, we love exposing those kinds of people, don't we? We do. We take great pleasure in it. And it's the same kind of phenomenon that seems to be going on at the foot of the cross in those final hours before Jesus' death. Do you notice that reaction in our passage as Pip was reading it for us? According to Luke's gospel, on three separate occasions, in the hours before he dies, people hurl insults at Jesus. They mock him. And in every case, the refrain is the same, save yourself. If smartphones were a thing back in the first century, you can imagine Twitter would have been lighting up, right? Lighting up. The Jewish rulers who were gathered together in verse 35, we're told that they were muttering to one another. He saved others. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Hashtag vindicated. Then in verse 37, 
Some of the Roman soldiers, they get in on the action as well. If you are the king of the Jews, they mock, save yourself. That even fashioned a sign that read, king of the Jews, big inverted commas, king of the Jews, and they nailed it above him in mockery. Finally, in verse 39, even one of the criminals hanging right there next to Jesus, he decides to join in on the jeering, aren't you the Messiah? His words dripping with sarcasm. Save yourself and us. I mean, how, how you can make a joke in the middle of your own crucifixion is kind of beyond me, but there it is. And it's interesting. It's interesting that in all three of these cases, the rulers, the soldiers, the criminal, they all repeat the same refrain. Save yourself. Three times in four verses really puts a spotlight on that phrase. But to understand why it is they're throwing this insult at him, you've really got to understand also a term that they're using, the term Messiah. I'm sure we've heard it before. This was an ancient Jewish title for Israel's promised rescuer, one whom God was going to send in order to save his people from their oppressors, which at this time was, was the Romans, the Roman Empire. And the word Messiah... It literally means anointed one, like a king. It had been like half a millennia since Israel had had a half-decent king, and longer still since they'd had one who was powerful and impressive. But God had promised. God had promised His people that there was one who was coming. And so you could say that Israel was really gripped by, by a messianic hope, you know, they were, they were waiting, waiting and waiting and waiting for the arrival of a great and powerful leader, a, a Messiah, the, the promised anointed one who would save them. Messiah is what Jesus had been claiming of himself. He claimed to be the Messiah in what he said, claimed to be the Messiah in what he did, and ultimately, it was his claim to being the Messiah that actually led to his crucifixion. That's why he was up there. As you can imagine, finding yourself nailed to a Roman cross puts a fairly big dent in your claim to be the Messiah. Like there was nothing heroic or honorable or, or glorious about crucifixion, like nothing. In fact, a slow death, hanging from a cross, was a pretty pathetic way to go. It was excruciatingly painful, while at the same time also being shamefully embarrassing, like people would come and watch you slowly die. And the fact that, that this was happening at the hands of the Romans, Israel's oppressors, that just made it even more humiliating. You see, in Israel's mind... Messiah is the one that's supposed to be nailing Romans to crosses, not the other way around. And yet here we have this, this self-styled Messiah who gets arrested, tried, flogged, and then executed so swiftly, so seamlessly, it almost looked as if like he wanted to die. As far as rescue missions go, a swift death, <laughs> that's abject failure. 
you see, the, the concept of a crucified Messiah, it actually made, it made no sense. Not even to Jesus' own disciples. Like, none of them are, are standing there watching going, oh good, this is the time where he dies. It's all according to plan. Crucified Messiah was like a contradiction of terms. They don't go together. See, one who was crucified, he was never going to be the Messiah, precisely because the true Messiah would never allow himself to be killed in such a humiliating fashion. That's why they mock him. That's why they mock him. I wonder what you would have said had you or I been there that day. Chances are you'd have actually probably joined in the Save Yourself chorus. I mean, I like to suppose that I'd be different if I was there, you know. Chances are, though, it's not the case. We wouldn't be different. I mean, how interesting is it that the three insults that Luke records are taken from three very different sections of society? You've got the poor and the educated, uh, the wealthy and the educated, you've got the strong and the powerful, and you've even got the poor and the weak. Like, all sections draw a similar conclusion, and all of them are scoffing at the idea of a crucified Messiah. Give me a break. And so we would too. We would too. Just like we sing in that great hymn, How Deep the Father's Love. Do you remember that line, how it goes? Behold, the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Friends, had we been there that day, we would have been saying or at least thinking the exact same thing. Save yourself. What are you doing? Why would we say that? Well, because self-saving is our game, right? Saving ourselves is exactly what we would have done had we been in Jesus' position. Save yourself I mean, everyone in the, the, the 12 hours before Jesus' death, that's what everyone was doing. It's what the Jewish authorities were doing as they plotted to kill Jesus. Save yourself is exactly what Judas was thinking while he betrayed his teacher for 30 pieces of silver. Save yourself was what Peter decided to do when he, he denied that he knew Jesus three times. Save yourself was exactly what Pilate was doing when he knowingly condemned an innocent man to death. Friends, the reason the crowd that day called on Jesus to save himself is because saving ourselves is what we try and do. All the time. All the time. It's what we want more than anything else. It's what, it, it's what keeps us up at night. It, it's what we spend our lives trying to accomplish, establishing the firmest position in life, securing ourselves the longest future we can, realizing our greatest dreams, whatever they may be. That's salvation for us, right? That's what we want. That is the self-saving project we dedicate our lives to. And we do it by building all sorts of things, by building a family, by, by building a fit and healthy body. Or we focus on building a career, which in turn, of course, builds our bank accounts. Or maybe it's building, literally building that dream home 
on that dream plot of land, in that dream location. Maybe it's something you do with our minds, mindfulness, or, or minimalism, or, or whatever else is out there promising us, as, as Marie Kondo does, life-changing magic. And, you know, that's not to rag on Kondo or all of those things that we go after, whether that's family or health or a house. It's just that none of those things actually save us. Like, I can't exercise my way to immortality. As It doesn't matter how many reps I do or calories I burn, it's just not going to happen. It's not possible to do. And I can't insulate myself against economic calamity, right? Because there are global financial forces that are just outside my control. And, and there is no house that I can build that's going to stand forever. And there's no family that I can foster that will always be crisis-free. Try as we might, friends, this ain't no self-saving world. We can't do it. It's worth asking yourself for a moment, what are the things that I've been looking to for my salvation? To save me. How's that been working out for you? Because the truth is, as life-changing as Kondo's philosophy might be, there is no amount of decluttering that will tidy the mess in our lives and the mess in our world. No amount of decluttering. How nice it would be if everything just boiled down to sparking joy, right? But it doesn't. And even Kondo herself admits as much. Life is never as neat and tidy as we might hope. Famously, Jesus once told a story of a family mess, of a son who, who he kind of just wakes up one day and, and he no longer wants to be a part of his family. He essentially robs his father of money and he leaves. And he then promptly squanders what he'd stolen and he ends up destitute. I mean, that's a mess of a situation, right? But the central problem is not financial, it's relational. It's, it's the son having abandoned the family, having turned his back on his dad. Friends, it's like that for us too, you know? Whatever mess, whatever mess you might have made in your life, whatever mess you're living through right now, whatever mess our world is in, actually the greatest mess, it's a relational one. It's, it's us having turned away from God, our Heavenly Father. It's us having lived as if He didn't exist, as if He doesn't matter, as if He's not worth my time. That's the greatest mess of all. And I can tell you now, there is no way of us tidying that up. Just like the son in Jesus' story, like he, he could try restoring the money that he'd stolen, but it wouldn't fix his mess because it's the relationship that needs restoring and the son can't do that. That's something only the father can do. You know what the great irony of all the insults that were hurled at Jesus that day? Save yourself was being spat at the one person in all existence who actually had the power to. 
See, at any point throughout the entire ordeal, Jesus could have pulled up stumps and said, oh, that's enough, right? He could have stopped what was happening at his arrest, at his trial, at the flogging, as he was being nailed to the cross. At any of those points, right, he could have ended it right there. In fact, three words is all it would have taken. How? Well, that's all he needed in order to stop the storm. Do you remember that story? With his disciples in a boat, he stands up in the middle of the storm and says, quiet, be still. He speaks to the wind and the waves and they listened. The storm stops, right? The power of nature and yet Jesus had more. And that three words was all he needed to drive out demons as well. Quiet, come out, he commanded them and they did. All the power of the spiritual realm and yet Jesus... He had more. And then three words was all it took for him to overturn death itself. Lazarus come out and his friend walked from the grave, even over the power of death. Jesus had more. So, of course, he could have stopped his own crucifixion, right? Three words is all it would have taken. Lord, destroy them. Father, save me. Three words. And it would have been done. And yet, bloodied and beaten, hanging half to death on a cross, Jesus whispers three different words. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. What's he saying? Instead of saying, save me, he's saying, save them. Save them. Those three words really tell us everything about what was happening in that moment on this weekend, 2,000 years ago, and it concerns our standing before God. You see, that word forgiveness, that's a relational word, isn't it? It's a relational word. By staying on that cross, by giving up his life, Jesus was taking our place, bearing the consequences of our mess, so that our relationship with God might be restored so that we might be saved. Let's consider that for a moment. The only one who could save themselves didn't, so that we who couldn't might be. The only one who could save themselves didn't, so that we who couldn't might be. turns out that crucified Messiah is actually not a contradiction of terms. Far from it. You see, it was precisely because of Jesus' death that he brings salvation to the world. The salvation that was promised. Messiah is not the one who gets down from the cross, but the one who stays up, up, stays up there. He doesn't resist his own death, but he willingly gives it up. That's how he saves. And all we need to do to receive that salvation is to recognize it and to respond to it, which is exactly what we see happen to the other criminal hanging up there with Jesus. He doesn't hurl insults like the other guy because he's come to recognize who he is hanging next to, the innocent son of God. And what does he say? He says to his mate, look, we're punished justly, but we're getting what our deeds deserve. He recognizes 
his need. He recognizes the mess he's made. But this man, he said, has done nothing wrong. He recognizes and then he responds. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knows who Jesus is, your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus reply? Truly, I tell you, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. This is a man who moments before must have felt about as far away from being saved as you could possibly feel. And yet now he's suddenly promised that he is, that he will be, this very day. And it's not due to anything that he's done, but because of everything this innocent man next to him was doing. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? Imagine as this criminal arrives to paradise that afternoon. Imagine as he stopped at the entrance. Ah, sir, why are you here? like, oh, um, I'm not really sure. Uh, yeah, what, what do you mean you're not really sure? Well, like, I don't know. I, I just died and here I am. Well, that's odd. Uh, let, let me ask you a question then. Uh, were you a good person? Not really. Well, at least you're honest. Uh, were you at least good to your wife and kids? Actually, no, I was, a, I was a pretty terrible husband and a pretty terrible father as well. Right, well, did you work with any charities? No. Uh, did you help clean up the oceans? No, I didn't do that either. Well, did you ever campaign against injustice and inequality? Anything like that? Nah, sorry, look, I can't say I did any of those kinds of things. Wow, that's weird. Okay, what about your job then? Surely you, you managed to make a difference in the world in some way? You know, I didn't really have a job. I, I kind of just stole stuff. You, you stole stuff. Right. This is strange. I'm stumped. I can't work it out. On what basis are you here? The criminal thinks for a moment. He goes, he realises, and he says, because the man on the middle cross said that I could come. The man on the middle cross said that I could come. Friends, as hard as we might try, we cannot save ourselves. There is no amount of decluttering that we can do to sort out the mess that we've made. But on this weekend, 2,000 years ago, someone did. The Son of God in fact, and it cost him his life. The question for us is, have you recognized that? And how have you responded? I'm just going to give us a few quiet moments to ponder those two questions for yourself, and then I'll close in prayer. Let's pray.
Father God, we, we thank you for gathering us here in this packed house together this morning. Uh, and we thank you, Lord, that this is happening right across our world as people are drawn to hear again of the story of what it is you've done for us. But Lord, we know it's not just a story, it's not just a fantasy, it's not just wish, wish fulfillment, but it, it actually happened, Lord. You came and you did it, and you did it for us, and you did it in order to get us back, in order to be restored in our relationship with you. Father, we acknowledge what it cost, what it took, and we are sorry, Lord, for the times when we disregard that and we go looking for salvation everywhere else but in the one place that it is truly found, in your son's death and resurrection. Father, we pray this Easter weekend that this story might resonate in our hearts and minds once again. And this time, Lord, that we might recognize the magnitude of what it is you've done and respond to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.